out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be a bit of a classic because I spoke to the one and only James Lascelles to talk about his life in music and much, much more. One-time member of the Global Village Trucking Company that we talk about from the early 70s as well as um, decades and still playing music to this very day um, was in a band called the Ivory Brothers who had a lot of influence in this kind of area I'm talking about East Anglia and uh, did a fantastic song called The Last Barsham Fair and also was in an 80s band called The Breakfast Band anyway look we're going to hear about all this in the interview so let's cut the cut the waffle um so anyway after several minutes of casual chat we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years james it's over to you take it away uh, culturally see i was around music my, all my life my parents were musical my mum was a pianist my dad was into opera knew everything about all the classical side so that's what i grew up with right met, met a lot of the musicians some of the stars you know Yehudi Menuhin became a family friend. Ravi Shankar became a friend. Now, my dad went to India in the late 50s, 60s, and he fell in love with everything Indian. The clothes, the smell, the food, especially the music. It somehow it grabbed him. Yes. Well, that, he, that's, that's, quite, some, that's brought, quite some guest list. In, yeah, he, he brought back a lot of sound and things, all Indian, and it really was exciting. I just took to the music. I loved the whole expression, the build-up exciting interchange between tabla and sitar i didn't understand it but i didn't need to i just reacted to it because i was young you know and it's yeah. always stayed with me and my mum so it's a classical side and then of course i wanted to play blues and rock and roll and funk and so on there yeah it doesn't really prepare you for that it prepares your fingers for technique but it doesn't prepare you for that syncopation it's totally different Yes, my God. So you, you've, you know, because a lot of people. Not answer to your question. <laughs> <laughs> God, God. I was just going to say because most people I speak to, you know, they they come from sort of those, you know, I know it's a bit of a cliche, but like sports people back in the day, you know, it was kind of living on the streets. I was just watching a documentary about Bill Shankly, who was the Liverpool manager, and he said you had two choices: you went down the mines or you played football. That was your only option, and football was your only way out. So people took it really seriously. Well, Otherwise, you were down the mines. Pardon. Cricket was another one. Right. So we used to but, say that a strong a strong England team was when you could whistle down the mines and a Yorkshire bowler would come up. <laughs> come to the surface, that's what they used to say. Yes. So whereabouts did you grow up? Yeah, good question. Um see, I'm up in Leeds now, near this is my spiritual home really up here. Um I went to school in London, so I spent a lot of time in London, which was fantastic for music, but my sort of uh, plugging into nature and being in the country and being, you know, a wild kid going around uh, outside. There was no restriction hardly. It was beautiful up here. So I'm, I'm a sort of Yorkshireman, part Yorkshireman. I don't sound it, but a lot of family here. And I've moved up here for a little bit right now, actually, for a little bit of peace and quiet from London. Nice. Well, that's good. So during the 60s then, as you sort of, we progressed through that famous decade, did it, was it a moment of awakening, of sort of discovering the beat generation, Jack Kerouac, Ginsburg, and then, you know, Charlie Parker. We all love Charlie Parker. Cab, cab away. Cab away. Way back. You're going back now. now. Yeah, but yeah, uh, I know. Um, what changed for me, actually, was one day my brother, who was three years older than me, which was a lot in those days, and in your teens, you know, 
he brought back, I remember not probably the same day, but these, these two albums particularly that made a big difference. One was Love Supreme by John Coltrane. And the other was uh, a John Mayall, um, I think it was Laurel Canyon Blues, who just moved down to America. And hearing these two, well, to me, was like the freedom. There was no bars like you have in classical music. Everything wasn't a da-da-da-da and set and stopped there. And it was all a little bit chaotic. And I said, what is this? Once I heard this music, and this, especially Love Supreme, where Coltrane just plays without stopping art, you know, his imagination, his ideas, his playing is just beautiful. And uh, so that changed me a lot too. And that, that with the Indian music and, you know, and I told mum I wanted to be a drummer, not a piano player anymore. So I studied piano. Right. So I started drumming with Jimmy Blades, who was the top percussion man at the at the uh, Philharmonic. And uh, I said, no, mum, he was all rat-a-tat on the snare drum. No, I want to play like this guy, Ginger Baker, <laughs> double bass drum. That's what I wanted to do, you know. So mum, bless her, she got me a drum kit, even though it drove everybody crazy. Yes, I would imagine that's the, the, the me well, there must be a few instruments, but the drum must be, even someone practicing the drums must be delightful for the neighbour. So yes, that's good. So was your, did you take to the piano and keyboards quite quickly and easily? Yeah, I mean, being a musical family is great though, because there's always music about, doesn't matter what kind, classical music is beautiful upbringing as well. But um, yeah, something about the piano, the rhythmal, rhythmical possibilities, which equate with drums and percussion, because it's, you know, you're using your two hands, or use your feet for the drums, but there's a definite connection between the two. A lot of piano players are good drummers and vice versa, because they've got that, that separation. It's almost your left hand sometimes becomes another, especially when you're holding a bass, it becomes a different, okay, you're doing that, unless the right hand just goes off, the left hand still, you know, is, can do that almost. So you, you definitely, it's a way of connecting your left and right, your, your analytical and your instinctive side, isn't it? Yes. So as you, as we were watching, well, I was like back three at the time, but as you were watching the sort of top, the top, the charts of the 60s, did you start getting excited and inspired and wanted to join a band like the Animals? Or the Beatles, or the Stones, or the Who, or... Um, oh, so many, Jethro Tull, it was exploding in the 60s, it exploded yes. in London, I went to school in London, and I was hearing all these incredible bands, and these great venues, real funky, brought the best out of people, you know, Marquee Club and all these places, and uh, it was great, I wanted to be in all these bands, you know, and, and I had a school band as well. Yes, so what was your first gig, what was the first gig you went to? First, oh, first gig I went to, well you see, not quite fair because my dad took me to a lot of opera. I went to yeah. classical music when I was young. That's a gig. I mean, you know, a full-blown orchestra is louder than a rock band. You know that when it's going. Yeah. It's good. And you are assaulted. And when it's not, it's the same level as a rock band. But they're not all going all the time. That's the difference. The so what was the band. first gig you went to without your dad? Um, that's really hard. I remember going to festivals when I was a very wee teenager, like 13, 14. But, you know, I can't remember the very first gig, there were so many. Um, never saw the Beatles, I saw the Stones much later. I used to go to all the local clubs, like the Marquis, to see Chicken Shack and Rory Gallagher and uh, um, um, Steve Hartley, Coliseum, all these great bands in the 60s, 70s. Yes, I have to think of that one day. I can't actually, I can't picture the very first, I, could, I, I know the first gig I played, 
as a pro with a proper band, not a school band. Yes. Um, I can't do the first gig I went to because I was always going to concerts. You know, it was it was a concert and then it became a gig. It's the same thing. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Asking me this is still so I'm playing. You know, I'm doing a gig tonight. So, so did the did the folk world, Bert Yance, Davy Graham, you know the, the the kind of Al Stewart, Bob Dylan, did that? Did those guys at all kind of excite you? Leonard Cohen particularly and Joni Mitchell. I used to listen to a lot of American. Yeah. Yes, all of those you mentioned. Um, um, yeah, I, I did. Dylan, I didn't always get, but I, I loved his stories on the thing. So yeah, that was, listen, I always said, and I said to my kids, and I sort of did it myself without really knowing. When you, if you love music, listen to everything. Listen to all of it, every genre: flamenco, reggae, classical, rock, funk, jazz, and then you won't maybe like all of it. But there'll be stuff that you didn't know about that you might. Well, I like this now, you know. So it all contributes to the notes you play. You know? Well, absolutely. So then, in the early seventies, obviously, the the sixties dream slightly comes to a sort of a weird end, doesn't it? With the death of Jim Morrison, Jim. Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, then we had sort of Altamont and, and you know, things start to get a bit tricky. Altamont was the one, you know, was, that was the one, wasn't it? Altamont. And Charles, the Charles Manson murders. And a lot yeah. of people I spoke to from the 60s time, you know, Barry Miles and people like that, you know, they, you know, when I said and asked them, you know, why did that, what, what happened to you? Because obviously in the 60s you were there, in the 70s completely gone. Well, not completely, but, you know, they were not kind of on the zeitgeist. And he just said, well, we were very tired and we just wanted to go to sleep. And that was the end of his kind of being there on the scene, I suppose. And people like Hoppy Hopkins had gone to prison, and obviously that must have had a big Hoppy, impact on people. Filmmaker. Yeah, John we Hopkins. Knew well, we knew Hoppy he used to come and make do lots of short videos for us. Right. He's an amazing guy, Hopkins. Yeah, John Hopkins. We loved him. He was a great guy. Yeah, listen, but listen, David, I have to say, in the seventies, man, we took off. That was one of the best times of my life. Well, I know. Well, see, you're. You know, I was 18, 19, I was starting a band. I, I was down in, I think it was Oxford Polytechnic, playing a gig on the floor, grungy, your floor stuck to your feet. I was playing Hammond organ. After an hour, these girls come and lean on it and start, you know, smoking, whatever, they want to smoke it in those days. And at the end of the gig, so I'm looking at them all night thinking, whoa, I'm playing. Somebody puts a tenor in my hand. I go, right, what is going on, man? This is it. And that was it. <laughs> I was completely, I was probably about 17. I remember sitting at school when I was 13, going to my, you know, Public school, actually. Looking out the window on the first day, thinking I've got four more years of this, and then I can start band. That's what I thought. Yeah. So I that's for a thirteen-year-old to think four years. That's a lot of his life already. That's a quarter of his life to think that was my target. And as soon as I left school, I started the band. That's that's it. There was no plan B, was there? Lemmy had the same thing. I think when he was at school, he saw, as he probably said, he saw these young girls hanging around with the kid with the guitar and he thought mm, perhaps that that might work for me and it did so there you go that's <laughs> that was his lemmy yeah lemmy from motorhead so um all, the, all these people you, you talk about i know them all oh. uh, across each other we've done gigs on the same bill together you know well he was in a band called the rockin vickers before hawkwind and then yeah. obviously the hawkwind period and all the world of big fairies and all those guys and that and then you see punk was coming in in the 70s. It was an amazing, crazy cocktail. There was punk on one side, got Mahavishnu Orchestra with Coltrane and these sublime musical craziness. And, and all these funk bands that are sort of doing all the pub circuits and the polytechnics and universities. 
the, the possibilities, man, were so amazing in those days. There was a lot of possibility. So when was the 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 Global Village Trucking Company, <laughs> and um, when did that when did that sort of come into being? And that was that was the, I started that band in seventy two. As I said, right after I left school, so I was about seventeen, eighteen. All I wanted to do was play in a band. I mean, my musical chops in terms of playing rock or funk or pop we were hopeless because I was still trying to do the transition from classical music to but I was so into it and I, I was drumming away as well. And it was 72, I um the bass player that I had the school band with, he knew his sister was going out with uh, this guy, right? So no sorry, he was <laughs> anyway, the connection was we found a drummer and a guitar player who were down in East Grinstead, which is a Scientology headquarters. Okay. Oh, nice. So they were being indoctrinated, right? They get a tent and it had a really strong vibe in those days, Scientology. It was quite dangerous. And it, it got a lot of musicians. Incredible string band, Chick Corea, Stanley Clark, a lot of them became Scientologists. Not yeah, well, I, I did an interview with Rose from the Incredible String Band, and she said that was um, that was kind of the end of the band when I think two of the members, all three of the members, all ended up. They all up. did. Like Matt Herring, Robbie Winston, they all did. I mean, yeah. we, knew them. we knew that manager was American and Susie at the time, and she tried to get us all into it. We just weren't having it. I wasn't into it. But anyway, anyway, these two, we they heard about there was a band coming. Let's get out of here because it was a bit weird down there. And they got out just in time because one thing is becoming a Scientologist, which I don't want to get into it because I've, I've, I've been in and out of that situation. But um, you can't get out. And if you do get out, they hound you. You're hounded and your life is ruined. I've known people's lives are ruined. Managers are separated and lost their jobs because the guys won't have it. That, that's not good. That was very, in the, in the 70s, it was very strong and quite, quite dangerous. Yeah. Anyway, we, we got them out of there. So we had a drummer, guitar player, myself and a bass player. We went to live in the, in the country, actually, in Suffolk, uh, just outside Albrook. My mum had a house on the beach. She lived us for six months and we just honed our skills. We, we got a singer from Oxford and we spent six months down in the basement in the garage playing, playing. I mean, it was horrendous, some of it, at first, but slowly... It took shape. There were some musicians nearby who were staying in Manfred Mann's house in Leyston, Suffolk, right? Right. This is a good story. And Manfred had lent them this house, among whom was Alan White, the drummer, who played with Tastigo and a band of Yes and all these people. You know the whole thing. And then a lot of the um, Geordies, there's a great band which never unfortunately came because Alan White got, got um, nicked by Yes. But they used to come over, and they were, those musicians, way ahead of what we were doing. But they gave us so much input. Oh, this is great. We could, you know, we could do this and play all these sounds. And they were really, you know, ahead of us. And, but we soon caught up, and uh, we've played with a lot of those guys since. I've, I've known them all, all for years. Yeah. Amazing musicians. So, so, anyway, go on. I, I was going to say... not answers, David, I'm afraid. I tend to just keep going. No, it's good. Um, because... Because to be honest, I'm from Suffolk, so you, there is a kind no, of a. That's fine. Well, so were we. The band was based in Suffolk. <clears throat> but you went from there to a place near Dis, I thought, as a community community. Yeah, initially we did. We went <coughs> to, well, when we moved out of of Suffolk, which was outside Albury, we actually went to Oxford to play at May Day, which was a big open air first of May thing in in in, in Oxpens, one of the big green areas there, and uh we ended up staying there for six months, squatting. Lowell Coxhill came and jammed with us. Lowell. Oh, right. Oh, what a great player. He was such a great, great vibe. He insisted on coming because he loved the name of the band 
and he dressed up in a bear suit. Right? He had this, this bear suit on and played this soprano sax. It was fantastic. Anyway, um, we spent six months squatting and doing all everything a band does. You know, we had illegal parties, we had LSD parties. We were we really, and we were playing all the local places in Oxford. But then we thought, well, we can't do this forever. Squatting, it's getting a little bit hairy. The cops are coming in and out. So we moved to, we found this little cottage just outside this. Yeah, which was a run-down little patch cottage, little rooms. That, when, the, when we set the equipment up, you basically, if one person moved that way, we all had to move away. <laughs> just crammed, but somehow we made it work for, how long did we do that? For about a year. Right, that's quite well, interesting. And, you know, and, and because you, we talked, just briefly mentioned Scientology, I mean, cults and communities were quite a big thing in the 70s, wasn't it? And because and Richard Thompson was also in some sort of spiritual group down in Suffolk as well, wasn't he? Okay, well, the thing is, the word commune, that was the word that made everyone think free love, wife swapping, what does it mean? No, it means actually you have a life in the country, you grow your own food, you raise your own, in our case, goats we had, uh, we got cheese, milk, we had lambs, so we had food as well, you know, meat. We actually um, were fairly self-sufficient, but being a rock and roll band, we weren't that, um, um, what's the word? Um, Clean? We didn't keep it up as much, because we travelled a lot, you know, off on the roads. So we had to leave people behind to do it, and some of us did some, you know, anyway. Yes. Um, but it, that was, it was a commune, and that went living together, right? So we all, which was obviously a lot cheaper for 20 people to live in one house. One TV licence. There you go. And, uh, and finally, when we moved out, we, yeah, my brother and I got together and sort of, we got a place near Beckles. We ended up near Beckles. So, Southwold, actually. Right, right. Because just on that point, because yeah. I bizarrely did an interview with dear old Keith Christmas earlier today. And he told me a story of when he came and stayed in the, ba in, in the house with the, the Global Village Trucking Company. And he said that, um, and whether you'll remember this or you think, no idea, but he said he, he stayed in a room that was, was Bunty's room that, that had sort of a horsehair mattress or pillow or straw pillow. And he said it was really one of the most uncomfortable nights of his life. And he said it was... <laughs> that's in the attic. That was up in the attic. So that's a true story. Well, he did stay, if he's meant Bunty's room, that was up in the attic, yeah. We had about oh. 20 people living there. We had about 10 bedrooms. An 80-year-old no, lady. No heating, no, no heating, no sexual heating. Yes, he's... He, they had their own little fires, you know, and we had big log, log uh, open fires in the living room. So from, from that description from Keith, um, it was definitely a scene. You were definitely part of a kind of a scene as well. Listen, they made a TV documentary about us by way of a change which was as much about the music as about our lifestyle, because it was an alternative lifestyle. That's what people were looking at, questioning, marvelling, you know, liking, disliking, whatever it was. Because it all relates to music, drugs, free love. That's what they, not necessarily in that order. That's all that people that didn't, you know, they're just looking from the outside. That's what they associated. You know, yes. They associate um, maybe a, a more mindful, more peacefulness, you know, more serenity to life. They didn't think of that. They just thought of it sensational things that's what people do yes but also interestingly enough there was oh yeah yeah the, i've got that yes yeah the fairs and the festivals of east anglia which had a picture of lowell coxon in um so were you that as well i think there's a picture of uh, 
Well, they might be. So were you, because the first Barsham Fair was 1971-72, something like that. The first Glastonbury with dear old Keith Christmas was 1970. And um, so did you, you know, there was this obviously a, a kind of a change of kind of mind. People all bought the self-sufficiency book by Peter Seabrook, I think. And there was kind of the Cranks cookbook, I might come out later. But um, did you sort of have that sense with the fairs and festivals? Because the Albion fairs that started to grow and the Barsham fairs were growing, the fairs were growing. So did you have that sense that you were on a mission? Not so much a mission, more, yeah, almost. I mean, it was almost a mission. Yeah, that's, that's quite a good question in terms of, it's a mission, but we also were trying to survive as a band, right? So it wasn't just, I mean, we became known as playing at free festivals all the time. Nobody paid us at first because we got a lot of publicity when we got busted for playing on the streets in the Prince of Wales in London, Camden Town. And they came and busted us, which we were just doing a totally peaceful um, concert on the back of a flatbed truck. Lots of it was squatters, that was the problem. The, the whole street was squatted and they didn't like the independent industry, you know, from we had a, a cooperative that's selling bulk rice and grain and all that and it was a really great scene there and the police came and busted up arrested us there was a riot outside the police station we got into all the papers the it all the alternative papers and our name became suddenly quite notorious overnight that was about 72 73 right so people, oh, let's get the globs, of course, the globs, are, let's get to come and play. Okay, well, can you pay our expenses? Oh, we haven't got any money. Well, we've got to get up there, obviously. <laughs> okay, well, here, you know, we never got paid in terms of that, but we used to play because you have to play, otherwise you, you don't get anywhere. And then, of course, eventually we started getting a lot of gigs, and probably 100 gigs a year or more. Yes. I looked at the old logbook. In January, we did like 15 gigs one year. In January, that's unheard of, man. Anyway, and that was my brother who was managing us. What's your brother's name? Jeremy. Jeremy. There you go. Industry. Yeah. So with, um, did you have much connection with Hawkwind at the time? Because, you know, when you mentioned three festivals and, and squatting parties I mean, and stuff. You know, not on a very personal level. We did a lot of gigs with them. I remember one gig we did, at, I think it was the Lyceum. The, the, the guys in the band, got better memories than me right i've got a very selective memory and i forget too way too much i wish i didn't and i do remember this one gig we did with hawkwind and we did a few on the same bill of the roundhouse i remember playing with them at the roundhouse people like quintessence gong glow really trucking company camel all these amazing bands from the 70s really good musicians really trying to do something and the world was open the music world you could you could try anything you know it was new but anyway, this one gig with Courtwin, they were they were tough to build. They just had a hit with I'd say my silver machine, whatever. So they were quite they were riding it. But before we went on stage, on the side on a table was a bowl full of what looked like little pebbles or something. And you just go on, take one of those before you go on. So we all took one, right? Went on, went on stage. Luckily our set only lasted an hour because after an hour, some very strange things it was acid. They didn't tell us what started happening. If we if, we did, if it had been instant, we could not have played. And they played almost every night at that time. What acid? I don't know how you do it. But luckily, when Toby came off, you know, we'd, we'd stopped. We didn't have it on, we'd stopped, so that was all right. But man, Hawkwind, they really went for it. Yes. Amazing so, band. I mean, I didn't know them personally, but we did a lot, a lot of same bills, you know, together. 
Yes, well, anything, dear old Lemmy, we loved Motorhead in the end. But you then recorded your first album, which was in the famous Rockfield Studios, Monmouth, yeah. didn't you? Yeah. What was that experience like? Oh, that was fantastic. It was the first time most of us have been, I was probably the youngest, and I think the bass player was a bit younger, but the other guys were four or five years older than me. They'd never really been in the studio to record. So they were in their early, mid-twenties. I was just coming out my 18, 19, 20. I just loved the whole process of it. It was so different. You know, we'd been doing a lot of live playing, let's say, for over a year, year and a half. Really getting quite a lot better than when we started, put it that way. And the whole process of being there and, of course, staying there. So you wake up in the morning, have your breakfast, go straight in the studio. That is still yes. the best way of recording. A residential studio, I still do it with this bass, uh, with, with, with my own stuff. I record with Steve Harley, that's the same thing. Anyway, um, so we had a producer who was really good. He really explained things to us. And we, we had a great time. We were there two weeks initially, and then I think we went back to do whatever else. I think the next door studio was Brinsley Schwartz. And Queen had just left, or they were there, something, there was an overlap. The Brinsley's, we became quite friendly with the Brinsley Schwartz guys. Do you know all these names I'm talking about? Yep, I, I absolutely, Brin, Brinsley. And that was, was that Nick Lowe's gang? Yeah, Nick Lowe was in that, Bob Andrews on, on keyboard. Um, oh, I forgot the drummer. Um, Brinsley was a guitar player. Anyway, it was a great band, really good band. Yes, but then you were on a label called Caroline Records, weren't you? Yeah, that's Virgin spin-off, you know that. Right, okay. That was um, the first, I think Virgin were trying to branch out. And uh, Caroline, I think, was the girlfriend of one of the guys working there or something like that. And so they just called it Caroline Records. And we were the first to, to be on that label. And unfortunately, the album came out just after we split up. posthumously. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's a shame, actually, because in a way it captured a lot of stuff. But this, I have to say, Dave, this remaster that we've just done, the reissue, that was great. And there's like 10 more tracks, 18 tracks altogether. I mean, you heard it. You heard it. Yeah, yes. They, they sent me a copy. It. I've got it. Well, I've got the MP3s, actually. I haven't got the vinyl, um, the CD. No, no, that's, not, that's not good. No, it's not this one. Right. I've only just, he just sent me the files. Who? Who's he? At Cherry Red Records. There you go. Yeah. They're generous with their MP3s. But you should get the thing, the album, because it's a little collector's item. And I would imagine. Oh, what happened? Hello? I'm still here. No, it just disappeared. Oh, Are you there? Yeah, yeah, I'm there, I'm there. Oh, thank God for that. So look, so why did you record an album on the, on the honeymoon period, and then why did you split up? Well, we didn't mean to spit up. The album was supposed to, you know, the album takes time. And then you go back on the road, the album does go through the process before it gets released. It has to be remastered. It has to be packaged, blah, 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 all that stuff. You don't have to all be there. So we kept playing. And then the guitarist left. He'd been one of the stalwarts, you know. The, the, like, although I started it, it was like the four of us become really close. And then there was the five in the end. So that kind of took the stuffing out. But the guitar player who replaced him was the guy who played in that Alan White band in Manfred Man's Place and Mason I was talking about, Pete Kirtley. Right. Since went on and played with um, Leanne Coward and Bert Yanch and loads of other people. He's now partly retired up in Saxminding in his garden up in Suffolk. But Pete came and played with us for a while. In fact, he plays on a couple of tracks on the album. A good player, good guitar player. Yes. 
never quite the same. I don't know what happened. And then the, the singer didn't want to live in the same house anymore with his girlfriend. And then the whole thing kind of dissipated because part of the thing was being in the commune, which meant when you're on the road playing gigs, when you're off the road, you come home, set up the equipment we had in the end. We had a, a really nice uh, rehearsal room and you just play three, four days off. You play, you're trying, you're trying new songs, you're rehearsing, you're whatever, jamming. So 75, you break up or split up. You're only in your sort of mid or early 20s. And then, you know, punk is happening. And, and so how did you feel about the next chapter? It was, yeah, it was a hard one because punk, I loved the energy of punk. And what they were saying was, you know, screw you, man. Everyone can play music. Don't, don't be a snob. You know, don't be, you know, that's, it's for the people. I, I, I liked all that whole energy. Just I didn't like the music and I didn't like the gobbing man. There was a couple of times on stage when gobbing, I couldn't, I couldn't, couldn't do that. No. That wasn't good at all. And I'm just, you know, it's not that musical. I, I love music and melody and, and arrangements and, you know, it's not, it's not musical for me. I'm not saying it's not for other people, you know. Um, but some, yeah, I joined a guy called Mike Story. We, we played a band called Cuckoo and I was doing a lot of sessions, loads of sessions. That was what kept us going. Yes. A different, that was a session, it was the best time. You know, I did a session with Al Shankar, the violin player, with Frank Zappa producing, with John Armour trading, with Annette Peacock, with Slime Robbie, with uh, all kinds of people. You were there. But just going back to your experience with Mike's story, you bring this one album out, which is quite, um, quite you know neat. Story, Pardon? You know who I'm talking about when I say Mike's story? Yes, because you do a famous album or single called The Last Barsham Fair. Oh, yeah. yeah okay, there you go. Can we, you... were the, we, we were the Ivory Brothers. We played quite a lot of these fairs. Yes. Yeah, more, than the, more than the Globs, the Global Village. We only played that a couple of times. Mike Story and I used to go and play that all the time. And we eventually had a band together. We, we, we played a lot in for a few years called Cuckoo. Yes, and um, I have got the vinyl record in this very no. house. Oh, shit. Okay. Well, with, at that time, as well as that, there was so much going on. The world, the music scene was just wide open, man. People were doing sessions, sometimes two or three a day. It was, it was a great time, actually. I have to say, it was a great period. Man. Yeah. So bringing so, this album to... Can you remember much about doing this, this particular album? Which one? Iona. Iona, yeah. Oh, yeah, I can remember a lot. I can remember a lot. Because we had John Porter who was the producer, and, and Bob Potter, the Porter and Potter Productions, or Potter and Porter Productions. We didn't know which way around it was. Anyway, um, and John since went to America and done a lot of people like Bonnie Ray and Taj Mahal and Jimmy Smith and blah, 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 all these different people, funny guy. But he was a friend of Mike's story, and he produced this album, really did a great job. It had, had a very musical thing. and. Um, we had a manager called Mim Scala, who had been in the business and done some film agent work. We went out to LA. We had some adventures in LA that I could tell you about one night. You probably heard them all anyway. And uh, we we almost got a deal. We got into A and M recording studios. We played at the Troubadour. Mike Story and I, you know, where we Elton John played. We we brought the house down. We were a duet. He was on the bottom. I was on the top. Which is what my mum used to do when she was playing house music. She was a duetist. Right. For some reason we really worked like this and of course not often you see and we were taking parts we knew what we were doing we brought the troubadour down man the troubadour have you ever been there in la 
No, but it's, 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 it's stacked just like that. It's got a few floors, so people are looking down, and you're in the middle. So that's how we're set up this time. We've right. I, I remember seeing a film with um, a very early Elton John gig at the Troubadour, and it was like well, one he, of the he, places. That's what made him in America. That's what made him. It was the place, wasn't it? So, yes, The Last Barsham Fair, which had John Porter, who went on to work with or produce The Smiths, who was one of my yeah. favourite bands in the 80s. Yep, yep, yep John. And John's moved to America. For, he's, he's still a really good friend. But moved to America for a long time, and now he's just come back the last few years. He's back in England. Yes. So were you, yeah. I mean, writing that song, The Last Barsham Fair, which I know I keep going on about, can you, um, was that a sort of a homage to the, the fairs and festivals? Yeah, actually, I didn't write it, Mike Story wrote it. I played on it, but that was, that's actually his song. And we, we connected there, you see, we had a, we had a very strong relationship and, and we had about a year or so, no more, two, three years, where we just played everywhere, did everything, we were fearless, completely fearless. And uh, so he wrote that, obviously, about Barsham Fairs, mentioned because it was one of the first and it's acoustic and there was no electricity, but there's a load about it, all, it's all the festivals, really. And I think that was the last one, because I think towards the end of the 70s or 80s, they, they ran out of money, they had no more grants or sponsorship, and the whole thing sort of petered out, didn't it, the fairs? It did. I mean, and, and they got too big, and I think then there was yeah. the Travellers and Convoy, and... and yeah, Travellers didn't help. And nobody really wanted to take the amount of work and responsibility for so little money. So then that was the kind of the, the so you and Mike eventually went your separate ways in a yeah, good. Yeah. But then what what happens next in the eighties? <laughs> well, I, I can tell you the first half of it. I joined this band, the Breakfast Band. Um, you know that band? Have you heard of that? I've <laughs> only come across the name because we were what they call acid jazz or jazz. Using jazz, we had a seven-piece band, and it was a completely mixed culturally. We had a <coughs> Trinidadian Guyanese drummer, a, um, a Trinidadian Syrian pan player. The percussion player was from Dominique. We had a Japanese bass player. I was English. Sax player was English, and who am I missing out? Guitar player, Winston Delanjo, Chinese, Portuguese, Trinidadian, or something. So the whole band was a mix, right? We played this crazy uh, instrumental almost entirely music with sax pan okay neely was that yeah pan uh keyboard guitar bass drums and percussion i mean we just when, when we hit our stride as a band as a rhythm and tunes we were people loved it people really got influenced courtney pine says if it wasn't for that band he wouldn't have uh, you know been doing what he's doing yes did you because you released about three or four albums because at that point there'd been this kind of rise of the kind of I suppose you had bands like Sade and Working Week and I think a band called Loose Ends there was that kind of fusion of a kind of pop jazz world fusion were you, were you one of the first bands <clears throat> to capture that sound and vibe? Yeah, I think we were because we, we used Steel Pan okay Steel Pan hadn't been used in that context that was used, used almost always for Calypso or Reggae or the Caribbean vibe although we had that but we were also we could be a killer funk rock almost but but and jazz you know all these sensibilities came in all these influences that we had in the, in the band and it was a great combination actually um we were together about three years we went to europe a few times we recorded an album for a japanese company who unfortunately didn't pick up the second option because we'd already been recorded another album we did two albums but the second one never came out and uh we digitally remastered it in germany at half speed to get greater clarity right speed. yeah 
and uh, it's called Dolphin Ride Breakfast Band. And it was very, very influential. A lot of people that still today come and say, "Oh, you guys were Breakfast Band. We watched you back, you know, back in the day, and you were." They, we influenced. We a lot of musicians came to watch us because the word got round that this was this crazy seven-piece band with all these soloists and tunes and vibes, and we got quite a, quite a following. I must say. I would imagine, and it was that kind of, especially in that period, the sort of early '80s. It was quite a sort of, I suppose, a demand for it at that time. But then you worked with just about everybody. You mentioned the Net Peacock, but Joan Armatrading as well. Yeah. Was, uh, it was good. It was great. Um, were you the go-to person for keyboards? I was one of them. There were a few of us, but I was one of them. I was the go-to person for, I used to be quite well known for my mini Moog solos and electric piano at Hammond. I mean, all of it, actually. But uh, yeah, there was a few of us, you know, because it was healthy competition. Um, keyboard players don't tend to get along as well as, say, a brass section or guitar players. They have a little secrecy thing keyboard players it's like they've got a little secret no this is my chord and you're not going to follow that chord in that case you know it's <laughs> all open you can all see it you can't hide it on a guitar you know but on the keyboard it's like something slightly wary of each other although we all get along but there's something so yeah i mean there was a, there was a few but i was definitely did a lot of sessions yeah session. my god you've done like hundreds with people like lee scratch perry who scratch perry went to jamaica to do it with him Unfortunately, no, not unfortunately, but part of the experience was that he he couldn't keep it together. He literally couldn't keep it together. He had uh, too much, very strong weed over there, right? And if you drink as well, excessively, plus if you mix very well, and he was just very unreliable, quite aggressive sometimes, really beautiful other times, very unpredictable, quite destructive, not in a physical way to us, but to his equipment and to people around them. Yes. Uh, and, well, uh, it's, inter it's interesting because I remember I interviewed, done another interview with a woman who got asked to play on, with Lee Scratch Perry and she, I can't remember what the instrument was, but she walked in with it because she was asked to come along to the session. And then he had an episode and told her to put the instrument in the corner and not touch it. And she was like, that's my instrument. I don't know what to do, actually. And then apparently he had wires all up in his leg and in his kind of clothes and coming out of his, you know. And she was like, I think I'm going to get my instrument and run. <laughs> well, when, when we first got now, we were all, the Jamaicans hadn't been to that kind of climate before, 1980. And uh, I was supposed to stay in his house. Well, not even his house was, was a room with a sort of bed, but there was, there was a walk, there was a passage going through, it wasn't a private room, there was a kitchen there, and people kept walking through, I was trying to get to sleep the first night, it was constant, the, the guys who were Dutch were organising this, this project with Lee Scratch, this ain't going to work now, I can't, and Scratch just never goes to sleep, he's just up ranting and raving, <laughs> always something going on with Scratch, and uh, it was very hard to um, predict him sometimes. Yes. Anyway, we all stayed out in the, up, up in the Blue Mountains in this nice um, hotel in the end, and then went down and said, but the first thing he asked us to do was, no man, we need uh, something in the drum booth, the drum booth. He wanted um, water, he wanted a, a glass with a, you know, where the drum, bass drum could sit, but water, because he figured it would give a good resonance, right? It would give a good drum sound. It's, it's a funky studio. So I don't know why he got Roger with the sax player, who was a really good, um, Another guy from this Mandra Man band called Bud Beadle, who plays with everybody, sax man. He started doing it. And we said, Bud, come on, let's you start. So basically the whole session got put on hold for about a week or two. And then Bud said, oh, I've had enough. And he went off. 
and we, we never got enough, we never got the work done. He was always fiddling around. He ripped all the leads out of his new 16-track console as soon as it arrived from Miami, right? An American set it up for him, especially for this product project. And in some one evening before he came, he just decided, ah, took all the, the plugs out. He had no idea to put them back together again. And uh, that was another part reason why that was we didn't get much work done. But no. He was on prediction. Really so, but so working with Sly and Robbie must have been a very different experience. Well, it's funny, it was Scratch's wife, Pauline, who had some souls. When we looked like this is scheduled with Scratch, is not going to happen, right? He's not going to, we're not going to do anything. She said, oh, come, 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 come. And that's, so it was me, GT Moore on guitar, Bud Beadle on sax. And the idea was to join with the Jamaican room section to have cultural meat melting pot of, of, of reggae rhythm from Jamaica and top lines from, from England. That was what they wanted to do. And scratch producing and mixing the whole thing. So what was the question again? Sorry, I'm getting started. Yeah, Sly and Robbie, working with Sly and Robbie. So Pauline, his wife, said, come on, let's, let's go off and do some recording. So we went down to Channel One, which is the studio in downtown Kingston. And walked in and there was Sly and Robbie, who were just about building up a big reputation. This was 78, something like that. And they were building up a big reputation, the two of them. Um, <clears throat> Sly with no teeth, no front teeth, and beautiful hair, you know, he looked great behind his kit. And Robbie was, was AD doing the whole thing. So she, listen to this, so, so the three of us sat this funky hammer now with a couple of notes broken and really dusty, and I sort of cleaned it. I said, Why are you doing that? Cleaning it. And the uh, um, sax guitar. She would sing to Robbie, right? He was over there, the drum booth was over there, right down the side of the room. She'd sing this song to him, and he'd sort of, uh, like a minute or so, and he'd say, okay, about one, two, three, four. And he'd had his bass line, or as she was singing in his head, he didn't look at us at first, didn't, you know, and we sort of, after first, okay, we caught it, because we've been there a while, we caught the riff. And he did it twice more. One, two, three. The third time, or fourth time, once he looked at us, because he because we were keeping up, he wasn't fooling us. Yeah, he was trying to get me, you know, see if we were up to it. So the fourth one, one, two, three, four, and we all came in together. It was great. So we did, we did about, and I don't know to this day what happened to those tunes because we, we did about four, five, I think about six tunes. Everyone, her, her singing to him, we couldn't make out particularly the melody, and he had this bass line. It was fantastic. Yes. I mean, well, I remember in the 80s going to see a lot of their gigs at the, um, well, they were coming to the UEA, the Taxi Gang, and they'd they would just play for about three hours, and then they'd have these different singers come in and uh, doing the, right. you know, their, like, one-hour slot or half-an-hour slot. It was just stunning at the time. But then, during that period, when did you, you decided to relocate to America for a bit? Yeah. Yeah, ten years, I went to, um, to New Mexico with my new family, second family. And uh, we ended up in New Mexico for 10 years. I had a great life out there. I sort of abandoned things here, obviously I'm in America. But I was learning, yeah, I did, did a, it was a very, very great experience. Apart from giving me two beautiful kids, my, my wife at the time, I thought she passed away quite a few years ago. We worked together, but um, I learned about another culture completely, Native American culture. Yes. And really, not even so much um, on a, what, what's the word? Um, it's just they have such a deep culture, it's so simple. 
and you know, no, no bullshit involved. It's like, okay, you can either follow this or you can't. It's not going to be very complicated. So, and I ended up recording uh, different ceremonies and songs and dances and powwows uh, in, in, in New Mexico and in the Southwest, because that's where a lot of, a lot of tribes are out there. Yes, and did the did the landscape? I was also playing in bands. I had my own band out there called It's a Small World Band. I was a D, I became a DJ on the university station. One of the only English voices. They love the voice, and I was doing all this world music for three hours. And uh, and and I was joined the local sort of the local top bands who were doing about fifteen gigs a month in the summer. I was. I mean, I was just playing away like normal, you know. But learnt a lot being an American. From Native American people, it was very deep, very soulful. I would imagine. So then, sort of in the mid '90s, you came, you relocated back to the UK. Yeah. yeah. And played and uh, and joined a theatre company. Is this the Footspan Travelling oh, Theatre? Yeah, that's it. You got it. <laughs> You've done your research, mostly. Uh, yeah, <laughs> or vaguely. And actually, my first wife working in it, and uh, it was a great company, really. We went to India, and we did this project called The Odyssey with five Indian people who'd never been out of their country, four actors and, and a musician. And we did this two-and-a-half-year tour all over, well, England, Europe, Ireland, Spain. Uh, we went to Co Colombia, we went to Costa Rica, and back to India. About two-and-a-half years, we toured this amazing show. Loads of instruments. I could, I've really plugged into my world music sensibilities then because I've been recording. You know, we said sessions. I've been recording with Frank Zappa and El Shanka, who's a South Indian violin player, amazing musician. I've been recording with Shusha, who's a Persian singer. I've been doing a lot of reggae, a lot of ska, you know, so I was really getting all this different musical ideas and genres and scales and timings, all of it. So once we did this, this theatre company was open to a lot of that. It's a story of Odysseus coming back from the wars, back to Penelope, you know, the old story of Homer. Yeah. A lot of scope for, we had an Indian musician, we were playing about 30 instruments on the stage, we had loads of instruments. I did that for two and a half years, since about the end of the 90s, almost the 2000s. Blimey, that must have um, been quite something. And then occasionally you, you, get, you get the option to um, go and do uh, Reform the Globes, which was, did that feel quite an exciting experience or just one of those things that felt inevitable? It's the Globes, not the Globes, the Globes. Globes. <laughs> Global Village, Globe. Globe, Globe yes. Global Village Trucking Company, which can take all day. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, so, uh, um, like, we had a period in the late 90s, I think, was it 97, where the BBC wanted to do a retrospective documentary about the first documentary they did in the 70s, which was called By Way of a Change. And they figured 25 years later, which I think it was, let's do another one. Where are they now kind of thing? What are they doing now? These same characters. And they picked ours. They had loads of documents. They picked ours. And they did a thing 25 years ago. And we did reform. We did do a couple of gigs, actually, for that. Around that time, we went to Glastonbury. We played at Glastonbury again, and um, did a couple of gigs. It was short-lived because I was quite busy, and the bass player was quite busy, and the others aren't more professional. They do other things, but I've always just done music. That's all I've ever done. Yes. So does that? I mean, in the last kind of ten, fifteen years, is it still the the kind of case of making more music and recording with different people? 
You know, I'm with I'm a Cockney rebel. You, know, you so are yeah. a Cockney rebel. I have just seen that you're a you are one of the Cockney rebels. So we're just starting to work again now. I've got my own band. I've got um, I play with GC Moore as well, the reggae guitar. Do you remember GC Moore? No. Um, well, there's a few, uh, and uh, but mostly I'm trying to get it's going to be even harder now. Trying to get my own music going as well, which was you know had a little bit of life, and now of course everything is trying to wake up again. I don't know how what the climate's going to be. Um, and I'm writing for a sort of TV series that may still been put on hold. Everything's put on hold, so we don't know what's going to come back. Yes, this must be quite difficult, actually. Has it? Because I did an interview with old Hank Wangford last year when he just was he just bought his new album, about to go on his tour, do all that, and it got got all got shut down, and he was feeling very bereft. Has has, so has was, how have you found yeah. the last year? You know, where he, just to, you know where he got his name, Frank, Frank, he's an old friend, Sam Hutt. He, oh, I suppose it's the village near Southwold. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's a village near, almost, we, we lived in a place called Southerton in Suffolk, where the band eventually relocated from this big farmhouse I'll tell you about. Yes. And the nearest village was called Wangford. <laughs> so Hank Wangford, that is his, you know, that's his... That's his little thing. Nice. Yeah, so anyway, he, he wasn't feeling the love. And I've all the interviews, not all of them, but a lot of the interviews I've done in the last year, a lot of the musicians have been finding it quite hard to get motivated. What has, what's it been like for you? Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, I mean, look, if you've got an instrument, you can always play. I mean, when there's some downtime, which is unusual for a musician, because we're quite nomadic, we like to have things to, to do and look forward to gigs and blah, blah, blah. <coughs> but it's also a time possibly to take stock. Look, I've got this beautiful grand piano downstairs, Steinway, that I, my mum had, and I told her the only thing I want when we pass, darling mum, is that piano, that's all I care about. Anyway, I've got it. <coughs> and you shouldn't play. What, 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 what more do you want? You know, if you're a musician, it's different from being an actor, there's no plays, right, you can practice with somebody or do it in front of a mirror. Musician, sorry, there's no excuse for saying, what can I do during lockdown? Just play, just play and see what happens. And, I've been composing, I've got five new albums I'm ready to go, you know, I've got so much music. It's not finished for me. It's the motivation is hard because there was a lot of collaborating going on. Collaboration yeah. is the sort of life and soul of music. Of course, you can't, can't do that at the moment. Um, you couldn't, you're just starting to again. But I think musically, yeah, there's no gigs, there's very little income. Of course, that's depressing. You know, it's, and it's also quite challenging for a lot of people because it's not just the musicians, it's the people behind the scenes, the technicians, the managers, the crews, the lighting people, you know, the sound people, all of those people. They're, yes. They're retraining. They're very tricky. And did you say at the weekend you'd been off at a festival or playing a gig? Uh, yeah, when we played with Steve Holland, when did we play? Um, we had two festivals, actually, one in Warwick and one in Derbyshire. Right. It's really, nice, really nice. One was the called the pub in the park with Beverly Beverly Knight was on after us. Great singer. And, uh, yes. Yeah, we did. It was festival, man. It felt like it was back. You know, I know they did Latitude, didn't they? Just now up in Suffolk, they just they did Latitude. That's good. Which I've I mean, never played at. Which I keep asking and writing in. Can you can, have you got it in there? The Latitude, by the way. No. <laughs> I really want to play that festival, man. And it's like. If, if the Globs came back, or even not, if something, a connection, because we were a Suffolk band just down the road from there. For, we lived about five miles away from, from um, the village. 
Yes, I mean, you, you, you definitely, you know. Actually, interestingly enough, with that site, my, my mother's parents lived on that place because they were kind of, what they, it was called, there was a big house estate and they were the kind of gardener and cook. I think it was called In Service, where you just kind of basically worked for the aristocracy. And that was their kind of, it was that on that estate that they used to um, live and work, which was um, interesting. Well, not that much, but um, yes, interesting stuff. But so, so with just, with, with the reissue with Cherry Red Records, was it a case of kind of digging through the archives and sort of finding some unreleased material, thinking this is going to be the one shot of doing a nice yeah, little job for this. I mean, funny enough, there was about, I think there were nine tracks on the original album, nine or ten tracks. Well, there was a couple that we'd recorded that we didn't put on. For some reason, either they didn't fit or we didn't think it was good enough. But listening back to them, actually really nice. So we put a couple of those on. We did um, some, I think, two are from John Peel sessions, one of which was on the album. One was a literally a live um, um, Revox recording off a radio show, another one. Some, I don't even know which one it was, but we got this one track that kind of fitted on, it worked. And then four others we got from a live recording with the Gritty Truckers live at Dingwalls in the 70s. Right. Which we did uh, a few years ago, four bands, especially four bands, that we did after. Gong, Camel, Henry Cow and ourselves. With four bands doing a live gig. Only two of the bands made it because of a lot of technical problems. But we so we included those four also. So at the end it was about eighteen tracks on the album. With the, with the well, look, you know, I'm showing you gatefold cover. There's there's information. There's a whole uh, um, you know booklets about the band. You know all kinds of things. Information, lyric sheets. Oh. Uh, Did it feel like a nice sense of completion now that you've done it? But you know, my brother, who's in the biz, um, much more successful in, in, in a way than uh, any musician will be, you know, Jamie's done a lot. He was the one who said, look, because he knows somebody in Cherry Road Records, they could be interested in that, and they really were, you know, because they do not such well-known, slightly more, not obscure, but bands that weren't on the top of the radar, but, were, but worked, you know, pretty much all around that period, the 70s. And yeah, they jumped in it, and they did a really good job, I must say. Nice, yes. So, so yeah, it was, it, yeah, I think we're trying to do a couple of gigs towards the end of the year. We'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. Yes. And is, was it the case? Because I now remember your that little documentary. Was your brother the fourteen-year-old kid who was the manager? Jeremy, yeah. He wasn't fourteen; he's about seventeen. <laughs> yeah, he was eighteen. He took to it again. He took to it like duck to water being a manager, getting into the biz. He was really, that was him. I remember him saying when we split up, it's all right, man, it's all right, I'm going to go and drive Virgin. I'll change Virgin from within, you know, I'll change them. But you can't change an industry like that. You can't change it. You become part of it. That's fine. And he's done, so he's discovered a lot of bands. He was an A&R guy for years. But um, he didn't change the industry. No, but my God. That's what happened. But then he became part of the industry instead. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, he's done this, you know, I've, I've worked, I worked with him a little bit after um, the band split up. And then I went to America and he sort of, he, he, you know, he thought I'd gone, so that was it. But I did work with him a bit. He got me, he got me the gig with Frank Zappa, producer with Al Shankar. Yeah. 
Nice. Well, there you go. So look, just last sort of point. I mean, if you were able to sort of tell your 16 or 18 year old some little sense or, or some bit of wisdom, is there anything that you would have whispered in their ear when they were just about to be launched into the world that is rock and roll and slight jazz and world music? Um, if, yeah, if you don't love it enough, don't do it. You've got to love it. You've got, it's got to be more than just, I want to be famous if I get it. You've got to love it. And then people will, will hear that. About anything, you know, cooking, writing, furniture, if you, pissed off for you uh, you're going to feel that in whatever you're creating isn't it yes it's, it's, that's very important because that's what's lacking i know it sounds a bit you know new age but you've got to love what you're doing enough because there'll be a lot of setbacks there's you know a lot of things but actually the more positive you are about it the less setbacks there'll be if you'll be uncertain so just don't worry about the money for starting just, just go for it yes keep it going well look this has been amazing. Well, I'm so pleased we eventually got this together, James. Well, what, what, what's, the, what, what's going to happen with it? Tell me. So I'll put it, I'll use most of it on, on my radio show. But if you want, I can always podcast it and send you the link. And then you could put it on your website, which I've been looking at earlier you today. Know what we didn't say about my, I've got a radio show. Oh, have can you? Just say that. Yeah, let's talk about your radio show. Okay, you ready? I am. I'm ready with the... I am also an official DJ for Channel Radio down in Ashford, Kent. And I do a two-hour show every Tuesday from 9 to 11 p.m. called the Global Tribal Music. So it's got the global thing from the globs. It's got the tribal music. And I play everything from Indian to African to Middle Eastern to Eastern European to Celtic to jazz to rock, old and new, you know, Aboriginal, everything, Native American. Does it um, does it include a play again? Play again. Sounds like Casablanca. Does it have a play? Can you play it again? Basically, do no, you are no. if if you miss the the the, two, the live performance, or it's pre-recorded in my case because no one's going down to the studio. I pre-record it up here. Um, if you miss it, you can go to the to the site www.channelradio.co.uk, and there's a listen again button for a week until the next show comes around. So you can listen again for a week. Just choose a DJ, choose my name, and you'll, you'll get that week. Right. So. It's got to be done. There you go. Yeah, do. So, I mean, and also, I, people send me quite a bit of stuff. You know, I've had stuff sent from all over the world. Oh, can you play a bit of this? I said, of course, send me an MP3 or an M4A or whatever it is, and I'll try and get it on. Just put it it's out really there. Tough. It's not a huge station, you know. But I love doing it. I've always loved being a DJ. I, I play, I've played the globs quite a bit on it. You know, and I'll play everything from Miles Davis to, you know, the Aboriginals playing the didgeridoo and hitting their sticks. You know, I'll, I'll play everything. Yes. There you yeah. go. There you Nothing's go. Nothing's off, off, off limits. I know. Nothing is off limits. I mean, on your, just on that last point, that is not a big thing, but um, you've got one hell of a CV. Not a CV, but are you, um, you've got quite a title, haven't you, in life? Well, you know that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, back in the day, it was worth a lot more. I'm just the on. They call the thing is the honourable, right? Which could be a you could be a politician in America. If I travel, they think I'm a judge, right? I don't dissuade. Yeah, yeah, sure, I'm a judge. Because they don't quite know what that means. Here, it's it's a bit more loaded, isn't it? But it's very nominal. It doesn't mean anything. No, but it's nice to have. Well, most of my brothers don't. We don't. You know, we don't. What's the word? Um, we don't. Advertising. 
Don't blame you. Well, absolutely, yes. <laughs> no, it was just like, oh, it's interesting. But no, that's fine. But look, okay, well, I've got that. I'm going to check out your radio show now and listen to your okay. sort of dulcet tones because, frankly, that would be nice. When, um, when would this come out? Or when, will it, when will you do something? Well, I'm hoping to put it out in two weeks. So I can, I'll, I'll archive it as well. well I'll, yeah, I'll podcast it so it won't just disappear after a week. And then if you want, I can send you the link and then you can put it to your website and use it and people from all over the world can go. The whole thing. I mean, I'll use little bits of it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, people will say, God, James was great, but that interview was so irritating. And you'll go, he was all right. He did, he did his best. He did, he did his homework. He, he, did keep, he did kind of think we were the global trucking company, but we weren't. We're the global village trucking company. Glob. You're not the first person that said that, by the way. It's a lot. It's a lot of a mouthful. It is, I know. It's easy to do. Anyway, I'm impressed with the John Porter thing. I'll have to try and find John Porter now because... I'll I... tell you another little tidbit. He and I were married to the same woman, not at the same time, but he, when he divorced, or when he got divorced, his first wife, he was Native American, part Native American, while I went back to New Mexico. We got together. John and I have a kind of very cosmic link with each other, and I, I see him, he lives down in, in Wiltshire. I, I do see him every now and then. Yes. Well, he has got his good CV with his do dear old The Smith, so, you know, it's yeah, got to be Smith, done. The men in America get a lot of stuff, aren't they? Well, I mentioned a few, like Bonnie Raitt and um, Buddy Guy, Taj Mahal, Jimmy Smith, and he was the go-to man when, when, when um, Pro Tools came out. He's very savvy with it. I don't know how, because he's such a mild, amazing guy. You wouldn't think you would know about it, but he knows about Pro Tools and how they work. And he used to fix people's Pro Tools. When it first came out, people got really confused about it. Right. He, he had it there. Okay, well, John Porter, here we come. I must find him. Anyway, look, thank so, you. David, nice to meet up. Yeah, we got some pleasure. Take care, and I'll give, keep in touch. Give away too, did I give away too many state secrets or what? No, there was no state secrets. We, 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 won't, we won't be disappeared in the middle of the night. But good, good story about your commune in Suffolk. I love those. Okay, okay, okay. Well, as if, I've been, you know, if we got all night, which we haven't, there's a lot of stories about all that period. Yes, it's good. Okay, thanks a lot. All right, your pleasure. Bye. And, and please keep in touch. Let me know when it's all happening and send me something so I can listen to it, right? Yeah, definitely. Okay, take care. See you. Bye-bye. And that was me in conversation with James Lascelles, just in case you didn't know. Um, a massive thank you to James for that. Um, I do believe he has got a website, which is uh, just, yes, Google jameslascelles.co.uk, and I'm sure you'll be there. And um, yes, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. Hopefully I didn't just say that before, but if I did, sorry about that. It's age. I repeat myself now. But if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these shows have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, do C86 show again. Um, anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe and tune in for more riveting interviews. <laughs>